Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 podcast. Uh, joining me today is our new medical director for NETS. That's Sarah Schlein. Hello, Sarah. How are you doing? Hey, Nick. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So if you don't mind, like we always do, I'd love if you just tell our listeners just a little bit about your background and how you got into medicine. So I grew up in Vermont um, on the other side of the state down in Norwich and um Early in my adult life, I actually got out of Vermont for a while and I was really interested in teaching and also outdoor education at that point. So I went to college in Minnesota and then moved to Colorado where I taught middle school for a period of time. And during that work, it was through AmeriCorps, I was introduced to trail building and um, moved from Colorado out to Idaho and Oregon and worked for a company out there, the Northwest Youth Corps, where we take groups of 16 to 20 year olds or so out into the woods and just be building trails for 10 hours a day. And a lot of that was hard work and physical labor. But this other piece was working with a group, a lot of education, a lot of environmental education. But beyond that, it was like learning how to communicate well and work as a team and take these young people that really had a lot of struggles in their life. And then figure out what their next step on their path would be. And then from there, um, I did a fair amount of international work uh, with a known interest in medicine and made my way back to Burlington in, it must've been 2003. And at that point, um, I did a fair amount of work and went back to school, did a post-bac program in Burlington and just became part of my community and started med school in 2006 at UVM. And, um, that was such a amazing point in life, the friendships from med school and the chance to play in the mountains and also stay part of this amazing community that we have here and, um, ended up matching an emergency medicine residency out in Salt Lake city. And, um, and I've been back in Vermont ever since. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, you definitely seem like the classic Vermonter who's just like the woods are always calling and you want to be outside. And that's so cool to have that opportunity to go out and do some things before you go right into med school. We talked with some of the residents and it seems to me like some of the med schools now they're, they are looking at these, these candidates who are, have life experience. It's not just the student goes to, you know, high school, they go to college, they go to med school. Sometimes these people, they may go 10, 15 years and live their life and do all these great things and then say, you know what, I still want to be a doctor and they go back. And it's so cool that that's like an encouraged path now. For sure. Like if you think about it, if you come in as a patient, it's so nice to know that the physician taking care of you has some real life experience, yeah. right? Yeah. Like it, you're kind of like, oh, this is like a 23 year old. Like, yeah. what do they know about what I'm going through? And while they might have the medical knowledge, it's really nice for them to understand you as a human and a person, too. And so, yeah, I love working with students who have had prior careers and they bring so much different insight and perspective on things. And it just leads to more fun conversations at work, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I've I've talked with, um, you know, Chance and Nick all the time as as a paramedic going into the ER and working in a teaching hospital where you have residents of different levels of years, I can tell almost immediately if that person has any sort of like emergency care experience outside of medical school. You know, the the folks that were EMTs, the folks that were, you know, firefighters, the folks that were wilderness responders, and just the way that they approach a patient. It's just, it's so incredible that they have the opportunity to do that. One of the things we do where I work is the residency so the docs can come down and ride with them on the ambulance. And I love watching them apply what they've learned in class 
to this like dynamic world of church street or main street, you know, and you're like, yeah. So sometimes you just got to talk to them for a while before you figure out what's going on. And I think it's, um, you know, having that life experience is really what leads to those conversations that develop the interview techniques and figure out what's going on with people and just connect with the patient. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. I often will tell students or residents that I'm working with, like, I don't care about your algorithm and all your checks, check boxes, just go meet that patient, sit down and listen to their story. And you're right. Like it's life experience that makes you realize you just have to like figure out what is the motivation behind somebody's story or their concern to know how to take better care of them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So one of the things we've decided to open up a little bit at Nets here is some of our wilderness programs. We, we launched our wilderness division last year. We promote a wilderness manager and in our search for our new medical director, um, you definitely were on a radar because you come from a world of emergency medicine. Um, I don't have any experience at all in emergency in medicine in the wilderness. It's really just for me have been on the ambulance, you know, first response to a certain degree, but I've never been more than 15 or 20 minutes away from, uh, you know, piece of equipment that has all of my stuff. So for those folks that are really interested in it, what are some, some basic you know, principles of wilderness medicine, you know, why would wilderness medicine exist? Why should we even pursue that if we're students? You know, I think you'd surprise yourself. You say you haven't done wilderness medicine, but wilderness medicine is something that really is situational, right? Like it could be just one like MCI, like situation right in downtown Burlington. It could be an environmental disaster, like a tsunami, all of that when you're actual resources become like less than what you actually what you need and you are in a different headspace you're using a different philosophy and a different approach to address whatever problem and when we think about wilderness we often associate that with an austere situation and just think like of all the different things that could create something that would be go from front country lots of tools to austerity but i would say that for for me it's this continuum and so much of what you do makes an enormous difference for the patient before they get to us in, in the emergency department. But if you just extend that a little bit further, these early interventions that are happening, like away from streets, especially in a rural place like Vermont, can make literally like life and death difference for patients. And so I think improving the care that we provide for patients when they're not on a paved road um, and it's going to take a little bit longer to get them to definitive care is better for our community. And it's also from my perspective and I'm biased, I prefer to be in the woods, honestly, than contained inside walls. And so if there's a way for me to practice medicine, which is this, you know, intellectually something that I love to think about and love to practice, but I get to do it in the setting where I want to play and want to live. Um, it's always been inspiring for me. And I find also there's something about wilderness medicine that is very conducive for um, teaching. There's something about that environment of getting medical students or residents um, or certainly anybody for that matter, like out of a classroom, away from PowerPoints and in an environment where there's real risk. There's it's not we're pretending it might be cold. Like it really is 40 degrees and raining while we're running through scenarios. And I think that degree of like realistic challenge brings people closer together and also 
cultivates these like leadership and these communication skills and solidifies these really important learning principles that you are just not going to get when it's all simulated. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something we definitely agree on and we've pushed very hard at NETS in the last few years is making sure that we're preparing our students for the street. And one of the ways that we want to do that is there may be a time for PowerPoints or maybe time for reading and there may be time for, you know, quizzes and scenarios and general lighting. But if we're asking our students to perform in adverse conditions, we, we owe it to the students to at least give them the opportunity to experience what that may feel like. Or they may not be 100 percent proficient at the end of that, given the amount of time we have with them. But at least we can get them to understand what their body and what their mind is going to do when that happens. And it's not the first time they've done it. You know, think of athletes, you know, they'll scrimmage before a big match because they want to know, okay, I know how to do this specific maneuver, this specific throw, but now what happens if I'm tired and my muscles are sore or the lighting isn't great or the ball is slippery. And I think that's what we owe our students is not just give them the basic knowledge and the cookie cutter education, but make sure that it works and that they at a minimum understand the conditions they're going to run into. And I think what you just said is like perfect. And to be honest with you, students love it. You know, our TECC programs and our PHDLS programs, you know, they've probably done that intubation mannequin a hundred times at their service. And now all of a sudden they're in a tight little corner in the bathroom and the lights are broken and, you know, somebody's blowing a whistle and you got, you know, Bon Jovi playing in the background and just mixing it up just a little bit. And all of a sudden the pathways in their brain that they've always used to accomplish it are no longer working. And now we've got to build new ones. And that's fun for them is to be challenged. So I think that's really awesome that you guys do that. Yeah, I love it. It brings to mind just last week when we were doing the paramedic refresher and we've got all these individuals who are super like talented medical providers. They know what they're doing, but suddenly they get out there and it's like, oh, wait a minute. Do I have to rush or don't I rush right now when I've got this hypothermic patient with pulses? And these questions come up that you think, you know, until you're in this situation. And so it's a great way to just fill in some knowledge gaps after one of my wilderness medicine courses after we ran this super challenging lightning MCI during a crazy rain thunderstorm, the, the students at the end of the course were like, my like most important request, if you could please make sure that it rains and storms again next time you <laughs> yeah. run the lightning scenario, because that was the highlight of the yeah. entire course. And they were soaking wet and freezing. But for them, that's the highlight. That's yeah. what you don't forget. No, absolutely. And, you know, we had uh, one of our instructors that we're using for TECC is a combat medic with some multiple deployments. And, you know, we, we know what we know that works in the street for EMS, right? I know what I would do if we're doing needle decompression on a paved road in the middle of the night because it's a gunshot wound. And what he was bringing to our attention is some of these little things that maybe we didn't think about. You know, he was talking about wound packing and how he puts the roll of gauze in his shirt or in his ballistic vest so that it doesn't drop on the ground and get soaked with mud and dirt. And it's just these little things that you can really tell that they've done it because they know these little tweaks that, oh, put it under your arm here or, you know, put your leg over there and then they won't roll, you know, and all these just little tweaks. And, you know, I, I think a key that we try to do here at Nets is make sure that it's not just the core group teaching everything our way. We got to bring in people that have been in those environments. And one of the reasons we look to you for wilderness medicine is because you do have a background in that stuff. And I think that students who are looking for a good high quality education, whether the instructors want to admit it or not, the students can sniff out pretty quickly if you know what you're doing or not. You know, if you're teaching from a book or from a curriculum or if you're teaching from the book and the curriculum and then showing how that works and why it works. 
And I think, uh, you know, in this age of adult education right now, it's all about the why that all our students, they just want to know what, why should I learn this? Why does it work? Why not this? Why are you saying that this should be done in this order? Um, and I think making sure instructors have the tools to explain that in a nice, relaxed, comfortable way is really what makes our students go like, you know what? That was great. I'm glad I'm gonna do that again. So that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So just to wrap it up here, what are some ways you think that students can get involved in wilderness medicine? So say you're uh, you're an EMT and you're like, you know what? I really like the woods and I really want to be involved. And, you know, you're in this area. Let's just use Chittenden County for an example, just because that's where a lot of our listening base is. What are some opportunities that they might have and what would be some prerequisites to get into those areas? So first off, I'd probably say to anybody who comes to me to say, you know, to ask that question is sit down. How much time do you have? Because my favorite thing to do is to support somebody and mentor them to kind of cultivate and develop their pathway to do more wilderness medicine. And the, you know, if if you don't at this point have a lot of experience, I think getting involved with a local rescue and just getting a chance to like interact with patients is an incredible first step. But e- even before that, there's so many different credentials that you can do in wilderness medicine. And uh, wilderness first aid is like, if you don't have a lot of other experiences, is a two-day pretty like low entry. But of course, we are going to get the basics. And to be honest, most of wilderness medicine that we actually do that makes a difference for people is the basic first aid level. That is actually really important. It's not all the like really fancy rare stuff that's really exciting. All of us need and use that basic first aid. And so doing a course like that is going to set you up to be a better camp counselor, a better leader for taking your kids or a group of students out. All of all of those times that you're out in the elements, whether it's even skiing in bounds at a resort, taking some basic wilderness first aid is going to give you skills to be a little bit more confident that when something happens, because things do happen, that you'll at least know the first step or you'll know the questions to ask and you'll know the people to call. Yeah, absolutely. I, it brings to mind when you're talking about that, we have a couple of our members that are also on Colchester Technical Rescue and they do some types of wilderness responses and rescue and the feedback I've gotten from those guys is a vast majority of the rescues they're doing especially in the you know the spring and fall months it's just folks that um, are unfamiliar with the terrain and get turned around and it gets dark quicker than they anticipate and a lot of them they're just improperly dressed and so something as simple as not knowing your way back down the mountain now you add darkness you add temperature drops and you add lack of clothing um, and just maybe some panic because they're unsure of what to do creates a rescue situation where you're right. Maybe it's not, we're not going to go up there and give complex medicines and airlift them out of there. Maybe it's just young fit people headed up there and give them a blanket and a better coat. And then we use a flashlight and lead them down the mountain. You know, I yeah. don't know if you've had a lot of experience doing uh, those types of things, but for sure. I mean, I, I've been on Camel's Hunt backcountry rescue for a while and Uh, I will say that a lot of the calls are just what you described. And I think we give out more headlamps. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's usually all those things you described with the like inadequate clothing, the not realizing the sun was going to set and they didn't have any sort of light. And also the cell phone battery dying usually is my phone's about to die. I think I'll call for rescue now. And, um, And honestly, sometimes it's somebody who is well prepared and like 
things, things happen. Like you're, there's a shoulder dislocation or, and we're, that's what we're here for. Yeah. Um, it's not, uh, we joke about this, but it's certainly not a judgment thing. I think it's really dangerous to ever think that even if being unprepared is the reason that you're getting to a pickle, it doesn't mean that you don't call for help because we'd always, and the sooner that people call the better it's delaying call or people who are embarrassed or worried about the costs. That's not an issue here where we've got teams available to come help. And so I think it is important to realize that, um, while most of the rescues are for poor preparation, like that's just part of the reality of those of us who like to go play. We don't always bring as much stuff as we in retrospect should have brought. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've talked about this before, but I had this big shift, you know, maybe five years ago in EMS where the first, you know, half of my EMS career, I really felt this pressure to be like the leader and the EMT and like, I am in control of the situation and I'm going to tell our patients what needs to happen because it's my job to lead the call. And I always felt like there was this missing piece of interaction with the patient when you do that, when you show up and you're like, okay, you know, this is, this is what's going to happen because I'm on the ambulance. And, and I think Sometimes when you take certain programs, they set you up for failure because they tell you that you're the incident commander. You need to make these decisions. You're responsible. You could be liable if you don't. Do, and it develops this like authoritarian culture. The joke I always tell people on the ambulances is, listen, we're not emergency medical police. We're emergency medical services. You're there to provide a service. And ever since I changed my approach to patients and now you'll go to someone, you know, and, and say you do find somebody that, that doesn't have the right coat and you get up there and being that provider that can hike up there and be like, hey, how you doing? You need a coat? Yeah, no worries. Where are you from? You know, and you just start that basic conversation and don't even don't even make it about that they don't have a coat. Be like, hey, you don't have a coat? No problem. We'll get one. We got plenty of coats. There's no big deal. No, we, these are totally fine. And I think just just making sure that it's not it's not like a, a power thing or a status thing when you get up there. And just because you're the rescuer doesn't mean that you're better than they are. And I think sometimes we miss that. And I think I've seen it on calls, you know, you go to a patient and they have an emergency and whether it's, you know, a quote unquote, you know, big emergency or not to them, they're in trouble and they need some help. And being that provider that says like, oh, okay, you know, your car broke down and you're stuck in the snow and you know, you got abdominal pain and like, okay, no problem. Like, we're happy to help you out. What do you want to do? You want to dig your car out? Like, we'll help you with that. And, uh, the best, wilderness providers that I've ever met are just like that. They just love being outside. They love hiking up there. They, they get up there. They're, there's no complaints about the weather. There's no complaints about being tired. Like they are there to do that. And they meet that person. It's like, Hey, no problem. We found you. Let's head on down. You know? And I think just being able to make sure that the patient's best interest is in mind all the time, um, is really key. Yeah. You know, one of the secrets about wilderness medicine that you don't have quite the same benefit from in front country EMS is, we have this resource of time. So you really get to know your patients and your team members because it takes, it might take eight hours to bring the litter down. And so it gives you a little bit more time to really connect with people. Yeah. We had a guest recently, Andy Spire. He's a pretty accomplished um, outdoor rescue technician from Washington state. Um, He's been on fire rescue magazine. He was contributing editor there. And one of the things that he kept mentioning was, paying attention to the long-term needs of the patient that people don't think about. So stuff that I would never consider, you know, he talked about doing a litter rescue over like 10 or 15 miles on by foot. And they were talking about how, 
a lot of the providers loaded this person up and they just started walking like they were going to walk from where they were to where they were dropping them off. And there was no consideration to like the fatigue of the patient in the litter or, you know, the patient needing to use a bathroom or food, calorie replacement, warmth, like, um, like the psychological needs of the patient being on a litter for hours at a time. And I thought that was really interesting because I'm definitely guilty of being one of those providers that puts someone in a litter and says, we are here and we're going to go there. And that's kind of where it ends for me. And I thought that was really interesting that he's, he was talking about, you know, thinking about those other needs that are different than what we might experience in EMS. Right. And then when you're building teaching scenarios and you've got that little piece of knowledge in your mind, you can insert these hilarious and, you know, unexpected little challenges. You know, you tell the person who's going to be in the litter as soon as they've got you all bundled up and they put all this effort, just let everybody know after that, that you need to pee and yeah, just yeah, like watching yeah, the students try to yeah. figure out how to navigate that. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. really interesting. One of the things I've, I've found that has always worked pretty good um, for me is trying to make sure that I understand the mental condition that some of our patients go through and something I used to do when I was younger um, is something like I would pack a backpack filled with supplies and I would just walk as the crow flies into the woods and then I would turn myself around and try to make it back out and just get used to what that feels like going through a river, going up a hill, down a hill, you know, not necessarily knowing exactly where you are, but starting to find those landmarks and figure it out. Um, I wonder if you had any advice for anybody, but I, th I would imagine some decent advice would be if you're interested in this type of thing, make sure that you're spending your off time doing these things, doing the hiking, doing the camping, because knowing what it sounds like at two o'clock in the morning on the backside of Camel's Hump in the middle of the pitch black with no one around you is going to help you empathize with people when you go to make that rescue because you know what they're feeling like and what they're hearing and what their what their temperature is going to be like. And I think making sure that we can empathize in a real way rather than just like assuming we know what it might be like knowing, Oh yeah, I know what it felt like to sit on that rock is going to help you connect with that person and provide them with the best possible mental care as well as physical care. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think that's true. And also just, you want to be comfortable yourself in these environments, you know, like for, which might be crazy for some people, but for fun for me is at four 30 the other morning, I was, skiing up camels hump with yeah. my headlamp yeah, so that yeah. I could get a ski in before work. And, you know, I, I was listening to, as you said that, and I was thinking if we had a rescue, I would just be like, Oh, this is what, just what I do, what I do for fun. I'm yeah. comfortable. But if that's something that you've never done before, which is be like hiking with a headlamp or out in the snow when it's yeah. negative, I think it was negative 10. Um, you, you need to make sure that you know how to keep yourself like warm and dry and fed yeah. and all those things, like really basic things um, before you're going to take care of anybody else. And yeah. so that's like, what a great secret, right? Like your, your job on this pathway is just to go have fun and yeah. enjoy yourself and just be out there. Yeah. It's no different than if you're a firefighter, you have to be comfortable in the smoke. If you're going to go rescue somebody else, you know, you, otherwise you just become a patient as well. And I think the same is true. It's just, uh, it's kind of a nice perk that wilderness medicine's homework is to go out and enjoy the outdoors and get comfortable in it. So that's pretty cool. Well, I appreciate you being here, Sarah. Thanks so much. Um, we'll have you on the, again, the show soon, but for those of you that are listening, if you have an interest in wilderness medicine, check out our website. It's netsvt.com. We'll be launching some wilderness programs this summer. We'll be out and about, and we hope to see you out there in the woods. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. Thanks, Nick.